Hey friends, welcome to week five of a six-week series on how to live as neighbors. We've been hearing from Shannon Martin and Beth Graybill about what it looks like to not only be neighborly, but to live as neighbors. And in a season where we're all wondering how to be human while living as neighbors, we talk about what it means to practice empathy and build connection by acknowledging the personhood of those around us. Today we get to hear from Beth Graybill, and then we get to listen in on a conversation between Beth and Kathy Burnett, who owns Brain Layer Books. Kathy shared her mission of building empathy one book at a time while uplifting marginalized voices. Thank you so much for joining us, Digital Fam. Let's join in. So over the last few weeks, we've been in this series called Start With Hello, How to Live as Neighbors. And this series is loosely based off of Shannon Martin's next book. Um, Shannon is here with us this morning. Um, And we're talking about how to live as neighbors. And there are two ground rules to this series. Okay, first ground rule is that this series is not about neighboring This is not about us like going and being a good church and doing good things for our neighbors. This is about this two-way street of how to live as neighbors and that there's some give and take in this relationship, right? Some of us need to learn how to be good neighbors, um, but sometimes some of us need to learn how to receive the neighbors around us. So there's a give and take in this idea of how to live as neighbors. The second ground rule I would say is that we're defining neighbors as whomever is in your space, whomever you're rubbing shoulders with on a daily basis. This could be your classmates. It could be your workmates. It could be your hallmates. Um, it could be your actual literal neighbors. Whomever is in your space on a daily consistent basis, those are the people that we're learning to live as neighbors with in this series and in life. And we've talked about some really um, good and hard things, right? Like how to pay attention. How do we actually pay attention to those people in our space? How do we lean in when it's hard? And it's been really hard the last few years, right? So how do we lean in when it feels really hard? How do we listen? Shannon and Judge Stephanie Steele um, had a really beautiful conversation on like how do we actually listen to the people in our lives And then last week, Shannon talked about this idea of hospitality and how hospitality is also a two-way street. We give hospitality and we receive hospitality. And I'm just curious by um, head nods or a show of hands, how many of you actually had a chance to practice the giving or receiving of hospitality this past week? Just curious. Okay, quite a few, quite a few. Um, Next week, we're going to spend some time in an open floor where we're actually going to get a chance to hear some of our stories as a community. Um, We as a family had a chance to practice some hospitality this past week, which was a stretch for me because this is a really full season. And when life gets really full, the last thing I want to do is have people in my home because of all the preparation that's required or go to someone else's home because I feel like of all the preparations required to take something. And so the permission I give myself when life is really full um, is to uh, get takeout. So we, had our, we found out that our old neighbors from the West Coast, from Southern California, were in town for a couple days. Their son was playing in the U.S. High School National Rugby Championships in Elkhart. Um, who knew that Elkhart, Indiana had, uh, yeah, a couple of you did, had these national rugby grounds. It's pretty amazing. Um, and so our old neighbors were in town for their 17-year-old son to play in these national championships, and we had them over on Friday, and I had to let go of, like, 
how my house looked or the food that we were going to make, yada, yada. And we've shared a lot of meals with these guys. When we lived with them in California, we literally could probably reach out our dining room windows and lock arms like we were that close to them. So we shared a lot of life with them. And we had tacos from La Michoacan. And it was great. And you know what? I probably could have served them the cheese sticks that I had in their refrigerator, and they would have been totally fine with it. Because it wasn't so much about the food we were eating. It was about the space we were sharing together, that we were giving and receiving in hospitality. Um, I know that some of you are still like, hey, this is a great series, but I'm still curious, like, how to do this. And so today is kind of the how-to of the how-to. We're going to talk about, like, how do we live as humans as we're mindful to live as neighbors? And I'm going to tell you from my perspective, from Shannon's perspective, the way that we live as humans as we learn to live as neighbors is through empathy and connection. It's through practicing empathy and building connection. Now, when we see these words, I bet most of us are like, oh, yeah, we've got that. We know what that means. We do that all the time. But here's the deal. We're going to stack hands on a definition of empathy this morning because I think empathy is one of those words that um, we can sometimes confuse a little bit. So if you looked up, if you Googled empathy right now from your phone or went home and looked it up in your computer or in a book, this is probably a definition that you would see. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. One of my favorite authors, um, doctor and researcher Brene Brown, she describes empathy this way. She says, empathy is a skill that can bring people together and make people feel included, while sympathy creates an uneven power dynamic, and it can lead to more isolation and disconnection. There's a little bit more here. Empathy is, I'm feeling with you. Sympathy is, I'm feeling for you. Empathy fuels connection while sympathy drives disconnection. Hear the difference? Empathy is, I'm feeling with you. And sympathy is, I'm feeling for you. The last few weeks, we've been talking about stories from the, from the gospel, stories about Jesus as he interacts with the people in his life. And I think Jesus was a great example of how to practice empathy and build connection We see Jesus practicing empathy and building connection as he interacts with the woman at the well. We talked about that story. Um, As he interacts with Zacchaeus, as he interacts with Mary and Martha, as he interacts with all of the people around him, these Pharisees, and he's telling them these parables to make a point to help them practice empathy and build connection. Jesus does this so well. We could go on and on listing the examples of Jesus practicing empathy and building connection. But Jesus isn't the only person who practices empathy in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul also practices empathy. Um, But here's the deal. Paul gets a bad rap. Paul gets a bad rap from a lot of us because many of us who grew up in the church maybe have experienced a very dogmatic view of Paul's teachings. Paul writes um, more than half of the rest of the New Testament. So of course we would see examples of him practice empathy and building connection. Um, But we don't always hear Paul's words in that way because of the way Paul gets translated in our communities of faith, in our learning communities. And so whether you have um, heard a dogmatic view of Paul or you have felt oppressed or repressed by a dogmatic view of Paul, he gets a bad rap. Um, There are a lot of scholars who are writing um, some new things about Paul as they reflect on his old words, and I think it's worth a shot if that's something that you're interested in. Um, But this morning, we're going to take a particular look at Romans 16 
as we see Paul practice empathy and build connection. Now, here's the deal. I'm a storyteller in my everyday life, and context is really important for me. So here's the context of Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul is sharing the good news. Paul um, used to persecute the disciples of Jesus, and now Paul has become a disciple of Jesus after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so Paul is going around the region um, sharing the good news of the gospel, which we've talked about for um, months on end here at South Bend City Church, that the good news is this idea that God's life lives in us and through us. That is um, the good news of the gospel. God's life in us and through us, and that we get to live in that way. And so Paul's going around the region sharing, and he's also going around the region writing letters. Like, hey, I'm soon going to be with you. So um, hey to my friends. Um, He's naming people, and he's saying hi to people because he's about to be with them. So Paul, in Romans 16, he's at the home of a man named Gaius. Gaius is Greek. He lives in the city of Corinth. Corinth is occupied by the Romans. Gaius has a couple guests in his home. Some of them are um, Roman nobles. He's a Greek noble. And here's Paul, and he's writing a letter to friends that he's about to join in Rome, and this is what he says. I want you to be wise in doing right and to stay innocent of any wrong. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends you his greetings, as do Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, the one writing this letter for Paul, send my greetings too, as one of the Lord's followers. Gaius says hello to you. He's my host and also serves as the host to the whole church. Erastus, the city treasurer, who is kind of like the Roman CFO of Corinth, sends you his greetings, and so does our brother Cortus. Now all glory to God who is able to make you strong just as the good news says, as my good news says, this message about Jesus Christ has revealed his plan for you Gentiles, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time. Here's the deal, you guys. There's so much going on in this passage. Um, Author, theologian Andy Crouch writes a lot about what's actually going on in this passage. If you want to learn more, I encourage you to read a little bit more. But I want to point out something um, really simple but really profound. In the middle of this passage that Paul's writing, I imagine Paul and his scribe are in this room. The scribe may have been assigned to Paul. We don't know. Um, Either way, there's a scribe writing the letter for Paul. So he gets to walk around and say out loud what the scribe is um, quickly capturing. And then I imagine a pause. And either Paul gives verbal um, affirmation or like the pause and the encouraging like head nod. Like, go ahead, it's your turn. And Paul's scribe actually gets to write We see here these verses again. I, Tertius, the one writing this letter for Paul, send my greetings to as one of the Lord's followers. And then Tertius goes on and he keeps writing a few more lines where he says, Gaius says hello to you. He's my host. He serves as the host of the whole church. Erastus, the city treasurer, sends you his greetings and so does our brother Cortus. And here's the big deal. This was revolutionary, these few sentences, because under Roman rule, the only people with full personhood were the patriarchs of that society. They were the male head of households. Everyone else had sort of like a throwaway name, like you were named because of where you were born or you were named um, because it was a hard birth or you were literally given a name that meant like first, second, third, fourth, 
most likely second, third, fourth, because the oldest, um, the firstborn son had a name of meaning. And so here's Tertius, which means third in Latin. And he's, he's a scribe. He's at the bottom of the bottom of this group of people in Gaius's house. And he's writing with confidence about what's going on in Gaius's house under Paul's encouragement. And this is revolutionary to give a scribe a voice. Not only a scribe a voice, but a scribe whose name means third. And third gets to recognize fourth, quartus. And not only does third get to recognize fourth, but third also gets to greet people not as his identity as a scribe. He doesn't call himself a scribe. He greets them in the name of the Lord. Like that took a lot of confidence. That took a lot of safe space for Tertius to write those words as Paul's scribe. What I love about the story of Paul and Tertius is that they are recognizing in in a society where um, Roman rule is the powerful rule, power trumps everything in their society under this occupation of Roman rule, and yet they're calling out the personhood of people, right? Where power trumps the day, they're calling out the personhood of each other. And I think it's really beautiful. And when I think about practicing empathy and building connection, that's what I think about us calling out the personhood of each other. And so maybe some of you are still like, I don't know, like, okay, that's great. That's a lovely story, but how do we actually do this? Um, Shannon wrote in her book, Start With Hello, that comes out in October. She actually wrote a few uh, bullet points for us on how we can actually do this. And here are a couple of those. Uh, We'll use humanizing language at all times. This is how we can recognize the personhood of one another, to use humanizing language with each other at all times. We will honor the full dignity of everyone, right? We are a church that says everyone an icon. We will honor the full dignity of everyone. That's how we can champion the personhood of other people. We will value the cognitive pain of critical thinking. We will lean in when it's hard. We will seek the emotional discomfort of leaving our silos in order to embrace a diversity of experience and opinion. We will pay attention, we will listen, we will lean in, we will ask questions. This is how we acknowledge the personhood of each other. This is how we practice empathy and build connection. And there's someone in our community who does this really well, and I'm going to invite that person up with us this morning, and that is Kathy Burnett. Kathy is the owner of Brainlayer Books, a children's bookstore in the near northwest neighborhood of South Bend. And... Um, Kathy has been a part of our community for a really long time in a couple different ways, and uh, we'll hear that in a minute. But we're honored to have Kathy with us here this morning. Um, Kathy also in 2020 was named... Yeah, go ahead. Give her... Yeah. Yep. Kathy was with our our church community back in October when we did Studebaker Talks. Studebaker Talks was our partnership with the city, and it was sort of like a TED Talk experience. And Kathy was one of seven people who got to share her story, and you're going to hear a little bit of that story this morning. It's really beautiful. Um, But in 2020, as we were in the middle of a pandemic, um, experiencing a lot of racial violence, a lot of racial tension around the country, Kathy was named by the Oprah Magazine as one of the top 125 black-owned bookstores um, in the nation as a bookstore that champions the best literature. Um, This is Kathy in her store, right? That's a big deal. Yeah, that's a big deal. Um, Kathy, when I've heard you share before, what strikes me about you is that you are all about practicing empathy and building connection, and you are literally 
um, looking to influence and encourage South emp building empathy in South Bend one book at a time through the mission of your bookstore. Do you mind just sharing the mission of your bookstore? It's to connect, sorry, it's actually to connect kids and teens with books that build empathy and develop, sorry, develop empathy and build community one book at a time, using inclusive literature as opposed to diverse literature, but also to have fun because I feel like that's something that's missing. We always say this is an important topic, this is this kind of topic, but that doesn't mean you cannot have fun with it. And so I'm trying to bring that part of the conversation to the table. So Kathy and I met last year. We were paired together for Studebaker Talks just to prep um, for that talk. And I was just blown away by her personal story and by the way she shows up in the world, um, not just personally, but professionally as well, and thought it would be such a treat for you all to hear Kathy's story directly from her this morning. So Kathy was not always a children's bookstore owner. In fact, um, you are not hesitant to say sometimes that you haven't always liked kids. I still don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them about used books, why you don't carry used books. Used books are gross just like kids. As a school librarian, I saw what people did with books, you know, and I'm like, no, I could never touch that. Um, I never let kids read the books that I was reading to them. They had to get a different one off the shelf, and I had mine behind me, just, I mean... This is serious. I, it sounds funny. This is exactly how I did. I had a distance they had to be for me because I also don't like hugs and touching. And so they had to be outside of the bubble when, they were to, when we were together. Which Kathy can say that because you're a mom. You have a beautiful young daughter who's launching into the rest of her life. Second year of law school, right? She just finished the second year of law school. What, what? Yeah, that's really exciting. <laughs> so Kathy and I met a couple weeks ago just to talk through this idea of doing this conversation together. And as soon as she walked in the room, I got up and I gave her a big hug. And she's like, you know I don't like hugs. I was like, yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> We're also standing this morning. Another thing that I love about Kathy is she knows herself so well, right? She's lived a lot of life experience. And so she can say, I don't like kids, but I have a kid's bookstore and I do, and I do my job really well. I'm putting that in there. Um, but we also talked about, you know, we could stand this morning, we could sit this morning. And what did you tell me about standing? I have to stand because I have a, have, need a place to send my ADHD. You'll send me going back and forth or rocking, and it helps me think and focus if I'm moving in some way without disturbing other people. Right. So we thought swiveling on chairs um, was not the best idea. So we're standing which allows us a better view of everyone in the room here as well. So Kathy, I'd love for you just to share a little bit. This conversation goes so fast. You have so much wisdom to share with us. Can you please tell just a little bit of your journey? Because I want people to, to know, like, you don't have to start off with a, a literature degree or an English degree to be a children's bookstore owner. Where did your career journey start? Well, I was a tax accountant for Coopers and Libran back when they, there were eight big accounting firms. Um, I worked in state taxes in Illinois and in California. What I loved about that was I got to do a lot of research, and that's what my brain loves to do, is to dig deep and find answers to problems. But it was also very boring because it was tax accounting. Um, so then I left there, and I worked for a small advertising agency, um, helping them lay out magazines and things like that. And then that got boring, and I became worked for a travel agency, we were selling travel advertising back when that was a thing, and then that also got boring. So that's kind of how my life went. It's like, as part of my inattentive ADD, I love learning, I love figuring out stuff, but once I do, 
I'm pretty much done with it. It's like I have to move somewhere else. And the only thing that kept me doing the same thing over and over was when I became a school librarian. So that's where books come in for me. So tell us a little bit about your, um, what you discovered about yourself and about students as a school librarian. So as a school librarian, um, one, I read the study called Windows, Mirrors, and Sliding Glass Doors. In it, Rudine Sims Bishop says that literature is a reflection of the world and that when kids read this literature, they understand what the world's like. And part of the problem was that some kids were not seeing themselves in books and therefore they couldn't make a connection to their place in the world. As a matter of fact, they didn't think they belonged in the society that they were in because they didn't see a role model for themselves. And so that got me to thinking about my own child who's biracial, who wants her, wanted her hair straightened all the time, you know, and we would do it on occasion. Um, and I started thinking about that, the fact that her self-esteem was low because of what she was seeing on television, what she was reading in magazines, the hair that her friends had, the books the school gave her, were reinforcing that straight hair was the way to go. And so first thing I did was I shaved off all of my hair because I also had straightened my hair. So I wanted to make her, like have that reflection for her. And I came across this TED Talk by Chimamanda Adichie, and in it, Chimamanda says that she thought books could only have foreigners in them, because that's all she ever read. She didn't even think that people in books could live like she did, because she had never made that connection. And I tell people that, and I try to remind them, this does not mean that you can't read the books that you grew up reading. This doesn't mean you can't read what we sometimes call the classic. And what it means is, if you are only reading that, if you're only having kids read that, that we are sharing a single story and we will never see the change because we're saying that these are the people who are important, right? And that was the other part of Rudine Sims's um, research when she was saying that we needed to see ourselves, people of color, LGBTQ, physical and neuro disabilities, as a person with ADHD, like I needed to see that reflected, but people who always saw themselves in books felt like they were the only ones that had a story to tell, right? So that was reflected back to them. And that's, what, that's why we're where we're at. And that would lead me to a very deliberate choice to choose children's books because I wanted to help teachers diversify and include their um, classroom collections and what they were offering to children. Kathy, you have a really interesting perspective on the classics. Can you just share your thoughts? Uh, you shared how the classics aren't not, are not just the classics. Because the classics also have one view and we forget that there are other cultures who also have their classic literature. When you hear me say the classic, there's a set of books that you think of right away. But Spanish people also have classics. Black people have classics, Asians have classics, and we never talk about those things in school. And so that's kind of why I don't sell classics. I have some of my favorite books are classics because that's what I had growing up, but I don't sell those in my store. Um, I try to send those people to Barnes & Noble or Half Price Books because that's where they could get them from because schools are still requiring kids to read those books. And what I try to do though, because our mission is to uplift marginalized voices, to center people who were underrepresented in literature, I don't sell books that don't have that same mission. So if a teacher calls me and they want a book and I don't think it supports my mission, I say, I'm sorry, I can't sell you that book, but here's this other book that I read that would fit the same standards that you're trying to teach. I always ask them what they're trying to do with it. So having have a degree in education, 
I have a master's degree in library science, I have a degree in accounting, so all of those things kind of work together to help me do this job. So Kathy, you started this portion of your career as a teacher. Can you just tell us a little bit about that journey and then your journey into as a librarian? Yeah, just where, where you were a teacher and then... I was, used to yeah. teach um, kindergarten, surprise, surprise, at, at um, North Point Elementary School. I taught kindergarten and then I taught first grade and then I taught second grade and then I got sick of kids again and I decided, actually that's not true, what happened was I gave my second graders an assignment and they were supposed to do a research paper in the library. They went to the library and they were not allowed to pick their own books, it was given to them. And I thought, instead of me complaining to the librarian, let me figure out is that the only way to do this job? Is that how it's supposed to be? Should it be boring? Should we be reading the same books over and over? A spot came over at Discovery Middle School, so I got the job over there, and the only thing that the principal told me was, one, you could take a risk, because we want kids to, to take risks, so let me have the teachers do that. She said, I could do whatever I needed to do to make the library the center of the school. And the library was in the center of the school. It was on the second floor, and it had doors on each end. When I came there, the first thing I did was open the doors and let kids walk through. Because if I can't see the kids, how will I talk to them? How will I make them get these books that I had for them? So that was our first thing that we did. I changed the entire library around. I took off every book off the shelf. Teachers' books went to the teachers, because why am I warehousing your books? I don't need those books. You're taking up space that I need. I changed it to genres, because that's how we read, right? You look for a mystery, you look for sci-fi, you look for fantasy, why couldn't we have that for kids? So we did that. Those are our changes. We did, I brought in one book, one school, which they're still doing. They're not doing the same way I did. They're actually doing three books because they're not as smart as I am. But we did one book, one school there. Like I brought it in, and my whole goal with that was to show kids that reading could be fun. Right? We could not read a book that a teacher could teach. Those are two different types of books, so we didn't have that. So that was kind of a big thing um, that we did. I also love your story of not only were kids now passing through the library to get from one side of the school to the other, but you learned these names and you actually kind of chased after a few kids with Well, actually, books. I never learned a kid's name because that would mean I like them. What I would call them is blue checkered shirt, gray shirt. Because that way, you know, nobody, everybody knew I didn't like them, so there were no favorites. I felt like that's what I was doing with that, right? They knew I did not have a favorite. I knew no one. So, but what I used to do is I listened to kids. Like, I really, truly believe that kids will save us, and I listened to them and what they were interested in, and I made sure I had those books, and they could put new books on hold when they came in, just like you do at the public library. So I would have these books for them, and when they would walk through the library, I would present it to them like I'm doing a million-dollar check, like, oh, my God, your book came in, and look, you're the first person that gets to read it. So that's kind of like making reading special. I walked around the school reading. I would sit in the hallway reading, like, everywhere, because reading can be everywhere. I actually brought a book today, but Beth made me talk to people in between, so I didn't get to read it. Oh, you brought that book to read. I did bring that I book to brought, read. <laughs> I it's, thought she so brought that book to show you all. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Kathy, tell us about your journey from being a librarian to um, opening a bookstore. You had a group of people that really walked alongside you during this time. So as a hardcore nerd, I used to go to nerd camp. Every summer for seven years, I, a grown woman, went to nerd camp. And at nerd camp, it was teachers, illustrators, authors, librarians, all these people came together to figure out 
how do we connect kids with books? Because we were seeing that kids weren't reading as much as they used to, and how do we change that story? I mean, we talked a lot about we need diverse group books, and there was something about that, but I was always telling teachers, you don't have to stop teaching this book. What I want you to do is add this other book with it, right? We can get a contemporary version of that classic that you're using and see did anything change? Is the story still universal, right? Because that's what they say about classics, the story is universal. So this new version should have the same thing in it. So we did that, and for, show you my rings, I have these two rings from a book I read, because despite what my daughter says, every book has an answer. She swears that a book is not the answer for everything. But I read a book called Just Listen, and it was a guy who was struggling with anger, and one of the things he did is he got two rings to remind himself to calm down. So I got two rings. One says pray hard, and one says fear not. And so it just kind of, every time something comes up that I am afraid to do or I think won't work, I just take the next step. We raised $11,000, I quit my job, and I opened Brainler Books. That's awesome. Can you tell us? Yeah, go ahead. That is exciting. Something to celebrate. Can you quickly tell us about the third ring you wear? Pardon me? Can you tell us about the third ring you wear? Oh, it's an infinity ring because I like Marvel. So <laughs> I have, these aren't these. I also believe in surrounding myself with special things. So these are custom platform converse. They're in the colors that the store colors and it has brain layer on the side of it. <laughs> Love it. So Kathy opens her bookstore, and Kathy, you have um, just some books that you grew up reading. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your favorite books and maybe what it was like for you to grow up as a young black girl in Chicago? I'll tell you one, and one book that I do have that is, I guess, would be a classic is Are You There, God Is Me, Margaret. Um, Are You There, God Is Me, Margaret. In that book, she started questioning who she was. And I give this book to every sixth grader, boy or girl, because that's where they start questioning who are they? What are they supposed to be doing here? And it's one of my favorite parts. Um, it's one of my favorite books to give out. And she, there was a part though that it says, I must, I must. Sure. Yes. <laughs> so I did those exercises too that were from the book. So. If you're not sure what Kathy's talking about, there was like a funny joke when we were kids about like, I must increase my chest size. And that's what she's referring to. So that dates a lot of us in the room yeah, who know does. that. It does. Who know I that, am old. That joke. No, you're not old. But speaking of the past, can you tell us a little bit about um, just your upbringing and how you really, uh, your, your relationship with books? So I grew up on the south side of Chicago in the projects and what people now know as the ghetto, which didn't start as the ghetto, it was a public housing project that the government had to help people get on their feet and find jobs and do that. We had flowers, there were benches, it was beautiful. But as time went on, like people changed, right? The government decided that lower income people should only live there. And so the people who used to maintain the building were evicted, they had to leave. And so the building started getting into disrepair. And that's when the gains came in because people needed something. They needed a connection. And gangs were a way they could find love and take care of their family. And so they were in gangs and there was drugs. All of that because it was 16 stories, 10 apartments on each floor. That's a lot of people living on top of each other. Not even a whole block, just one little area. So that was part of it um, for me. And then Having books from the bookmobile, we didn't have books in our house, we didn't grow up with a library or anything like that, but the bookmobile would come twice a month, and so being on the bookmobile is where I found my love of reading, and I would just read pretty much everything, and I loved it because it felt like I had these friends. So of course I didn't want to return the books because 
who returns their friends? So that was part of it. I, like, I liked it and I disliked it for those um, same two reasons. Yeah, can you tell us a few of your favorites, the books that you grew up reading? So Jane Eyre is my all-time favorite book um, because she was an orphan and she was treated terribly and then she succeeds. And so I took that as my hero's journey book. I love the Chronicles of Narnia and I have read them several times and I read them every year. Um, just yeah. all classics apparently. Right. Hmm. A lot of books. 1984, Fahrenheit 451. Uh, this is why I tell people when you get those best of lists at the beginning of the school of the year, people like vote on everything. To Kill a Mockingbird wins not because it's the best book, but it's the book that everybody was forced to read. And so people remember, oh, yeah, I know that book on this list, so I'm going to vote for it. Mm -hmm. So you grew up reading a lot of books where you couldn't find yourself in those books. Exactly. Yeah. And so how did that shape? Tell us about um, what it's like to be inside your shop today. Well, first, the books that you see face out will have different color kids on it. We make it a point. We do black, indigenous, people of color, LGBTQ, like I said. And our big one that we're working on right now is looking for books that have kids with physical and neural disabilities, because that's another thing that we don't see enough of. So coming in, you have that. And 90% of the books in the bookstore are books that I have read myself. Like, that's how I pick them. I have read them, because then that makes it so that if a kid comes in, and I need to talk to them, they need to find a book, I ask them a lot of questions, and then I could go find a few books that I know that they will like. And so having read the book helps them make that connection. Absolutely, Kathy is a master at this. I actually popped in before Christmas, and I gave her a quick rundown list of all of my nieces and nephews and like a real quick blip about their personality. And in like 10 minutes, I had a stack of books for um, each one of them. And uh, they were- I do go overboard, so you yeah. do have to stop me. <laughs> I will pull every book. Because to me, all the books are good. I mean, why would I have them if they weren't good books? Right, so. right. So Kathy, your mission really is building empathy one book at a time here in South Bend. Um, and beyond South Bend as well. And I'm just curious, in light of the tensions that we've been living in, in light of the, the violence, um, the racial tensions, like how would you encourage, what, what books would you recommend for us as a community as we think about what it looks like to practice empathy and build connection today? So first thing I would say is you can't just buy the books, right? You have to read the books and then you need to discuss the books because that's the big part that we're missing. We all buy the books, but then they sit on the shelf. I mean, one of the first books I would say is I'm in a group called Relevant Reads. It's with three librarians from Notre Dame and two librarians from St. Joe Public Library. And we came up with this list so that we could look at systemic racism from all different angles. Right, so we can have a way that people could understand what's happening. And the first book we did was called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee, because it looks at our notion that there's just one pie, and that if I get a piece, you can't have a piece of it. And it talks, it looks at people who think or who say they are not racist, they are not anti-racist, and it shows you where you benefit from the system that has been going on since the beginning of America with the caste system. Um, and then the second one I would say would be Tightrope. And in Tightrope, Nicholas Kristof talks about the erosion of the middle class is basically what he does. He talks about all these programs that the government used to have for all of us, like the GI Bill, things like that, and how they slowly started taking those away and they put the burden on the people and said, hey, you need to lift yourselves up by your bootstraps, which if you've ever seen boots, you know you can't actually do that, right? Because it's to help you put your foot down, not lift your foot up. And so that was kind of the, they gave you different terminology to say you don't need help. 
and they stopped putting money that way. So that would be the second one. And then the color of law. The color of law shows you why people live in, why white people live in the suburbs and why black people live in the inner city. It talks about how the government, how the FHA was told the only way that people could get money to build housing was they had to have it segregated. And if a place was integrated, they would make them move. They would move them out. Like the only way for them to get money to build affordable housing was to be segregated. And so a lot of that is stemming from how we started. So reading those three books would be good. Um, you can come to the store anytime. Everybody in the store knows about books. We each have a different specialty. I do this work through children's books. I have someone who does it through voting. So one person no vote would be another one that I would say. You look at the laws that we have now. You think about the idea that they don't want to give somebody water if they're standing in line. Like why would that be a law? that you can't give someone water. There has to be something behind that. So these are like research books, but are written accessibly, so anybody can pick them up. And then you can see why we are where we are and hopefully help us make that change. Kathy, one last question for you. I know that you've often talked about your relationship with your dad, how there was um, one time a day that the two of you actually got along. And um, just your also your wanderings about how his life would have changed if he had had um, an experience. I feel like she just said everything no, she no, wanted no. me to say, right? No, no, no. I'm just kidding. My Tell dad was us. a pastor, so yeah. I grew up in the church. Um, I have 14 sisters and brothers. I'm number seven. I have eight younger sisters and brothers. I think the youngest one was born in 1984 or something. Um, but so part of that was we had to go to all these different churches. And we realized that my dad was a different person when he was in front of these people than he was with us. And it made me resent going to church, right? But there was one time that I always, my dad and I always got along, and that was the first thing in the morning. Because we had such a big family, him and I would get up and we would have coffee, sitting in the window looking out. And I would imagine that both of us were imagining we were somewhere else than where we were, that we weren't in this space. And that's what made me think about, what if my dad had seen himself in books growing up? What if the people he worked for had seen him and his possibilities in the books that they had. Like, what would his life have been like? What would your life be like if you pick up a book about somebody else and then went and talked to them? Like, our stories connect us. That's what we have. But it can't just connect us. You have to do something about it. We all have a level of privilege. We all do, everybody. This guy can be up here talking about my custom Converse shoes, right? But what I do with it is I use that to bring other people forward with me. So we have a nonprofit that I run, and in that nonprofit, we help kids build libraries at home. Since I didn't have one, I know how important that is. So we help them, and I help parents talk to kids about books. I give away a lot of books. People think the Brain Lair is a nonprofit, but it isn't. We would like to make some money in the store as well. So. Kathy, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in our community. Can we give Kathy a round of applause? What a special treat to have her with us this morning. And I love the way Kathy not only practices empathy and builds connection in her personal life, but she champions that in our community as well. Um, Kathy, you really do see the personhood of the people around you, and I love that about you. So thank you. Um, speaking of personhood, guys, every week we've been landing, ending this uh, weekly gathering on a practice. And so our practice this week is that we're actually going to practice empathy and build connection, which sounds a little nebulous. So we have something for physical for you to do this. Um, we actually have packets of seeds from Shannon Martin's garden. So thank you, Shannon. 
um, so that you can take these seeds and you can plant them in your garden or you can plant them outside your door or you can plant them in a pot on your windowsill, whatever you do, just as a reminder that empathy and connection, it takes practice, it takes time, it takes intention, right? And in doing so, we recognize the personhood of the people around us and that is how we live as neighbors, as we recognize the personhood of the people around us. Um, so for our benediction today, uh, will you stand if you're able? Speaking of recognizing personhood, um, it has been a week of tragedy in the U.S. in several different places um, regarding gun violence in the name of um, racism. And I think this morning it actually would be really important for us to name the personhood of the people who lost their lives in the Buffalo shooting. And then we're going to close our time by praying for not only those victims and their families, but also the Laguna Woods um, tragedy, as well as um, we've experienced some violence, gun violence in our own community in the last few weeks. So will you um, say these names with me out loud, the names of the people who lost their lives in the Buffalo shooting? Roberta Drury. Margus Morrison, Andre McNeil, Aaron Salter, Geraldine Talley, Celestine Cheney, Hayward Patterson, Catherine Massey, Pearl Young, Ruth Whitfield, Zaire Goodman, Jennifer Warrington, Christopher Braden. And we honor their personhood by saying their names out loud. Um, however, prayer feels comfortable for you. If you um, want to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. If you just want to stand and be present or sit in your seat and be present with us, I invite you to do that as we pray our time out together. God, we just pray for these families of these beloved victims. We pray for your peace and justice. God, we pray for grace and action. God, we pray this not only for Buffalo, New York, we pray this for Laguna Woods, California, and we pray this for South Bend, Indiana, and we pray this around the world. God, we ask that you just give us wisdom and courage to take action, to lean in when it's hard, to listen, to pay attention, to get curious, to practice empathy and build connection. Um, God, help us to stay tender when we'd rather go tough. Help us to stay present when we'd rather disappear. Help us to honor and acknowledge and recognize our own personhood and the personhood of the people around us. In your name we pray. Amen. So grace and peace be with you. And don't forget your seeds on the way out. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.